going to be from John chapter 4. We're going to finally finish up John chapter 4 this morning from verses 43 through 54. If you need a copy of God's Word, you can find one in the back of the pews on page 519. Let's hear the word of the Lord together. After two days, he left there for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet was, has no honor in his own country. When they entered Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him because they had seen everything he did in Jerusalem during the festival, for they had gone to the festival. He went again to Cana of Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine, and there was a certain royal official whose son was ill at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea into Galilee, he went to him and pleaded with him to come down and heal his son since he, had, he was about to die. So Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. Sir, the official said to him, come down before my son dies. Go, Jesus told him, your son will live. The man believed Jesus, what Jesus said to him and departed. And now while he was still going down, his servants met him saying that, that his boy was alive. He asked them at what time he had gotten better. Yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him, they answered. The father realized this was the very hour at which Jesus had told him, your son will live. So he himself believed along with his whole household. Now this was also the second sign Jesus performed after the, he came to Judea, to Galilee. This is the word of the Lord, church. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Week 19, our study in John. Long way to go. We've been in this since the uh, beginning of December. Taking a slow plod through a book of the of the Bible, really drink deeply of the scriptures. That's what we're about here, Grace. And so we finally get to the close of this beloved chapter that we've been studying the last couple of weeks about the Samaritan woman at the well. There's a problem with faith today. It may sound maybe controversial to some of us. It may sound like, oh yeah, I get that. But I want to try to explain to you why I think there's a problem with faith today. Much of what passes for faith, and I would say maybe more specifically passes for faith in our kind of Western context, right? United American context, is that kind of blind hopefulness that when you really inspect it, turns out only to be a kind of self-determination cloaked in spiritual language. That's the kind of idea of faith we have in our world today. Let me give you some examples. I have faith that this will work out. Or I have faith that I can beat this disease or she can beat this disease. Wonderful statements. But when we begin to examine them, we find that these statements of all I need is faith are really nothing more than a blind, substance-less hope that produces really no fruit in our lives. Now, I think today we're going to find out why. And, and, and friends, if you hear me time from time to time 
kind of pick on the prosperity gospel, it's because of this very reason. Because at the heart of the prosperity gospel, all these people who are out there saying, you can name it, you can claim it kind of things, is really turning faith into a I'm sorry, self-determination. It's really bad. If you believe enough, you can get what you want. That is, exa- that is clearly opposite than what the Bible teaches. If you've been in that world, you know that God doesn't promise you the happy, healthy, and wealthy life that you want. He says, because ultimately this world is not your home. This is not where it all ends. And for us to believe such foolish things and put our hopes in things like that turns faith into something entirely different than what we find in the scriptures. Because the Bible's teaching on faith is very different. Hebrews 11.1 says this, Now faith is the reality, or perhaps in your versions it'll say assurance or substance of what is hoped for and the proof of what is not seen. This is very different because it's, it helps us understand that true faith brings true assurance. And that true faith is not superfluous assurance or hope, not, not very thinly veiled faith. It is, assures us that, that the things that, we, that are unseen, yet God has been teasing out and revealing since the garden, are actually true. That His promises actually are true. That is what real faith is. And so... That's what we're going to begin to kind of press through and think through this morning in our text, is what does true and better faith look like in our lives? You know I love doing this, but my sermon in a sentence is this. The right kind of faith is that which finds its object in hearing and receiving the word of Christ and growing in it. That's real faith. That we find our object, our faith finds its object in hearing and receiving the word of Christ and continuing to grow in it. So you'll, if you want to follow along with the sermon this morning, you'll have two headings that you're going to want to keep your eye on. The first heading is going to be a kind of faith or identifying the wrong objects of faith. That's going to be our first idea from the text this morning. And the second thing we're going to look at is the exact opposite, how to identify the right objects of faith, or namely like object of faith, which of course is Jesus himself. Now, before we dig into the text, let's do a little back study here, in case you haven't been here the last couple of weeks, or if you're new to our church. Jesus, we said in this first early part of chapter 4, has he and his disciples have just spent two days in Samaria on their way from Judea back to Galilee. So they take this stop there. It's an intentional stop. We've said it's a divine stop. It's something that God has planned so that he could share the gospel with this woman. This woman would then go into town and share this gospel with her, with her community in Sychar and I guess the, really the best way to describe the, uh, the fruit of this ministry was it was highly successful. Revival broke out there in Sychar. Many people believed. Now, not everyone believed, but many people did that Jesus is the Savior of the world. Now, that's really, really important because to this point, we haven't seen this in John's Gospel. When he's been preaching to the Jews and to Israel and to Galilee and Judea, we haven't seen this kind of... Uh, of outbreak. Now, I, I, I share that because it's important that you notice the distinction between what God has doing in Samaria or Jesus was doing in Samaria versus what else has been happening over the places. Because in Samaria, in Samaria, he did no visible miracles. 
Not one. He talked about this living water to this woman, and she asks him for this living water, and he didn't conjure up some little trick for her. He looks at her and says, I am that living water. I am he. I am the Messiah that you're looking for. That is the living water that you need. In other words, he's saying, I don't need to conjure up a bunch of tricks for you. Believe my word. Again, very different than what Jesus has done in other places uh, thus far. That it's stark contrast to, say, what he did in Judea or even in Galilee and Cana when he did his first run up to Cana. This is his second time to Cana up in Galilee. And you know what happened the first time? We had a party. Right? Jesus turns water into wine. And people are believing. And they're believing because they've seen what Jesus has done. But even if you remind yourselves from what Jesus thought when they believed, he says he, he, he didn't trust their belief. Why? Because he knew what was in them. In other words, they had their, their focus on the wrong thing. They were looking at what Jesus was doing rather than Jesus himself. Again, we're going to pluck at that a little bit more this morning as we get into. And so when Jesus comes back here, finally grabs back into Galilee, this is very much the same thing that's being played out. So it sets us up very well for these first couple of verses here, verses 43 through 45. And it's in verses 43 through 45 that we find the wrong object of faith. Let's just pick up again. Again, put our eyes on the text. After two days, he left there for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. And when they entered Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him because they had seen everything he did in Jerusalem during the festival, for they had gone to the festival. So Jesus finally gets back to Galilee. That was his intention when he left Judea. And he takes this pit stop there in Samaria. And he finally gets back to, really, it's his home region, his hometown, right? And, um, and, 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 it, and it tells us why he's going back to Galilee. Verse 43, for, or because, Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. Now, that conjunction for, or because, is, is one of the most important conjunctions in this text. Because it gives us the ambition of Jesus' like, mission there in Galilee. Why is Jesus going back to Galilee? Because he doesn't have honor there. Now you'd think in our context, well, okay, those people don't want to believe, so we're just going to move on and go somewhere else that maybe be a little more fruitful to our mission and ministry. But that's not what we find. Jesus is not at all worried about the rejection. It's not a deterrent to him uh, in his ministry. In fact, it's a motivation for him. It's a motivation for him because he knows that the very, from the very beginning of John's gospel, we've, we've known that Jesus, as it says in verse 11 of chapter 1, he came to his own and what? His own did not know him. This is the very nature of Jesus' ministry. It's the very heart of it in some ways. That Jesus has really two ambitions in his ministry. One, to bring the good news to his own people and show them that they don't see it, that they don't get it. And then the opposite, to bring the gospel, as he did to the Samaritans, to presumably people that are not his own people, right? Outsiders. Uh, to be a little bit more frank, half-breeds is what Lay would have called them, unfortunately. And that's sick and twisted, but it's what it was. And he takes this to them, and they do get it. So you see this contrast, right? You see this, this kind of juxtaposition that's kind of developing here in John's thought, 
that they do get it. And how do they get it? Not by seeing signs and wonders, but by receiving the word of Christ. And so when this happens, verse 45 tells us exactly the same context. It's the same idea that John continues to tease out. They enter Galilee and the Galileans welcomed him. Another important conjunction, because, why? They had seen everything he did in Jerusalem. So do you see how John's trying to play these two against each other? He's trying to show us something this morning. He's trying to show his readers something vitally important about what faith is. Because you had the faith of the Jews, of the Judeans, of the, those in Jerusalem, those in the, in, in the Galileans. And that faith is rooted in what? What Jesus does. Which is a good thing. Because Jesus does great things. He goes to the cross. He dies a death that we deserve, but raises from the, rises from the grave to give us a life we don't. That we don't get on our own. So yes, that is true and fundamentally true, but there's more because at the heart of the gospel is more than just receiving the benefits of Christ, getting the fire insurance, if you want to use that terminology, but actually getting Christ himself. That Christ is the very central reality of our lives. The very nature of the good news is a message that goes to the very heart of man's opposition of God. And Jesus is not afraid to do it in, in both cases. He wasn't afraid to go into Samaria, and he wasn't afraid to reveal things that the Jews did not want to see. And friends, if we're going to be a gospel witness, let me just sidebar here for a second. We've got to be afraid to speak to both sides. And that's really missing today in our discourse. We've got to be willing to let things be said that need to be said that are that are cloaking our understanding of the gospel so he goes into this and, and it just really reminds us that 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 sometimes we take jesus and we take his the things that jesus does and we make them the wrong object it tends to and, and it tends to kind of use jesus shows up when we're sick or when we're in need. It's, it's why Jesus would not entrust himself to them as we saw a minute ago. And it's why he doesn't entrust himself even now in verse 45 to the Galileans. He knows what's in them. Why? Because the works of Jesus take center stage to the person of Jesus. And the reason that's so important and why you and I need to take notice of it this morning is because the Son of God is the triune God. He's the second person of the, tri the Trinity. He is of infinitely more value to us and to be prized more by us than just the mere benefits that we receive from him. But we don't do that, do we? We are kind of reductionistic at times about our understanding of the gospel. So where does this uh, impulse show up in our lives? I've been really thinking about this, wrestling with this this week i got a couple of things I'll, I'll note. Maybe you could add more to it. I think it shows up in our life when we reduce Jesus and the gospel to being um, nothing more than a wise teacher. Maybe an ethical shaman. Right? That really it's, it's, it's about, okay, well, Jesus is the wise teacher. He's got the real thing. And so if I, get, I hitch my wagon to him and I hitch my wagon to his club, I'm in the right circles. Therefore, this kind of pride of attachment to someone special begins to kind of well up in us. So the Galileans were like, he's one of us. That dude's born and raised here, y'all. Most popular prophet on the circuit. 
least the most notorious. <laughs> He's one of us. Galileans were missing it. And sometimes we do too. We do this in our circles, right? We do this in our doctrinaire kind of approaches. Sometimes we kind of take this, the reformed underground, right? And we kind of make it the tribe. And if you're not in the tribe, then you're not really with Jesus. And if you're not really with Jesus, then you're not really one of his people. There's the right guy, Jesus is, with the right teaching. Gets me into the right club. We see this out there. I'm reading a book right now from a beloved brother that I love dearly. I love his ministry. I love his preaching. But unfortunately, in the book, there's some troubling things in there because he draws lines in places that the Bible doesn't draw lines. And he makes divisions in the body of Christ that should not be divisions. Sometimes we reduce Jesus to the gospel to social ministry. We talked about this a little bit in Sunday school this morning. And that can come in a lot of different ways. It can come in the social justice movement that we seem to be very focused on right now. Uh, we can do it in just the ways in which we care for one another, and it's a good thing, right? And I don't want to make sure we note this, because you can't read the Bible honestly and not fundamentally walk away going that Jesus was unreservedly cared for the poor, that he unreservedly cared for the estranged, the forgotten, the oppressed. To say that wasn't important to Jesus and to say that that's not in the Bible as a fundamental thing, it's just really honestly not reading the Bible very well. But, and there is a but here, right? In every one of these engagements of care for, care for these people, you always find Jesus with one other more supreme ambition, which is what? Not just to care for their earthly needs, but to care for their eternal needs. And so I, I just, me, for me personally... Even if people want to question that, we're a both-and church at Grace. Why? Because we know that one gives us the opportunity for the other in a lot of ways. If we love and serve our neighbor well, and we attend to the needs that are actually out there, tangible needs, needs that we see that are real needs, whether it's uh, poverty or those who've been estranged or whatever, the poor, uh, the forgotten, the oppressed. I mean, I know these are words that are triggering to some of us in here this morning, so just dial it down a little bit. You're okay. But they're real, according to the scriptures at least. But we're both answered in the fact that, in understanding that it, it allows that social impulse, hopefully gives way to an eternal impulse. Right? So we go to weary housing next week. It serves many refugees and many people of, of different cultures, and it's temporary housing for many of these families. We go there. Why? Well, not to do necessarily justice, but to hopefully give an opportunity to love people so that we get an opportunity to share the gospel. If we don't have that as our aim, then yes, all of the other stuff falls short. And frankly, it's just flimsy. It's really, really flimsy. And we don't want our ministry, we don't want our love to be flimsy, do we? So let's make sure we keep these things in their proper context. Sometimes we reduce Jesus and the Gospels to achieving our best life now. Okay, there's my prosperity trope I do, right? Our best life now. And so we reduce the Gospel to this kind of like, well, if I, if I do the right things, if I have the Jesus bumper sticker on my car, if I come to church every Sunday, if I wear the t-shirts, and if I... Come on, Jordan, you know what I'm going to say. If you don't cuss, don't chew, and don't date girls who do... I'm all good with Jesus, right? And the problem with that is, 
It creates an entitlement in our heart, doesn't it? If I do X, Jesus is obligated to do Y. Friends, that's just not the gospel. It's just not the gospel. He doesn't owe you anything. Sometimes we reduce Jesus to familiarity. Shows up when we are so familiar with the Bible, so familiar with Jesus, that we just don't believe he's going to do anything. Right? How many of you, how many of you this morning, like, read the Bible and then still don't expect real change? Like, we turn it into a functional folklore, legend. Oh, we believe it's true, but functionally it's just folklore. Friends, this is the way this impulse shows up in our lives. You can maybe add more to it and you're free to do so. But these are the things that popped in my brain this week as I've been wrestling through this. If you were to sum it all up, basically what we're doing is reducing Jesus to a, to a transactional relationship. That's all these things are. They're just transactional relationships. That's not the gospel. It's not the good news. Now, all of that I just mentioned here in this first point is setting us up to see Jesus' um, engagement with this um, official from Capernaum, this royal official. And that's what we're going to see here in verses 46 through 54. Let's just read a couple of verses. So he went again to Cana, and, uh, and there was a certain uh, royal official there whose son was ill in Capernaum. And that brother hears, heard that Jesus can, can help, and he goes to him, and he pleads with him to come down and heal his son since he was about to die. The situation's dire for this man. His son is on death's door, it appears. And he just needs some intervention. He knows they don't have the resources. No matter, listen, this is a royal official. If he has resources, he pro, if there are earthly resources, he probably has access to them. But apparently he doesn't. So he hears about Jesus and he goes 15 miles west, finds Jesus and says, come down and heal my boy. But Jesus' response seems off-putting, doesn't it? It's not what you expect out of Jesus. But Jesus is doing this to expose some things. Look at verse 47. I'm sorry, verse 48. Jesus told him, unless you people. So he's, he's looking at this guy, and he's lumping them in with all the Galileans who are surrounding him, who are all excited about Jesus being in town. Unless you people see signs and wonders, but he's looking right this man in the eye, right? You will not believe. It seems, catch us off guard, doesn't it? It catches us off guard and it, and it, and it, and it, and it just, it just, we don't know what to do with this because here's a grieving father and it seems like Jesus is being a bit insensitive. And maybe your context of Jesus is that Jesus is always meek and mild. Well, he is. But he's also frank, too. And he's frank to this father. But I don't think he's frank to be mean to this father, but I think he's using this as engagement as a way to look right in this father's eyes, this royal official's eyes, and here's what basically he's doing. He's basically testing the guy. He's saying, are you going to be one of them? With this kind of superfluous faith, flimsy faith, 
you're good if I show up and I do magic tricks for you? Or are you going to trust me for who I actually am? That's what's going on behind this. And the father's response is very simple, very revealing. Sir, just come down. Heal my boy. In other words, I don't care about all this religious fanfare going on up here. I just need help. And I believe you're the one who can provide it. And Jesus' response is the exact opposite. Such grace. Such grace. Go. Your son will live. There's no comment in the text about the sincerity of the father's belief. We don't know. There's just, there's no pushback by the father saying, okay, I get you say he's going to be okay, Jesus. Um, but I really would love for you to kind of drive, walk with me 15 miles. I want to be in the room. I want to see you pull off your, your stick for me. Please do this. He's like, there's none of that pushback from him. He just, it says in the text, the man believed what Jesus said and he departed. That was all that was necessary for John to, to give to us. And that's important because he didn't push back. He didn't insist on seeing Jesus perform his miracle, not even a peep of reservation. And I, friends, I just think this testifies to, the, to the, at least the beginning steps of this really work of the Spirit in his life where his heart is being regenerated to believe in Jesus, to see that his, the ultimate need that's going on here is not his son. It's actually secondary, but it's actually the condition of his own soul. And we'll see that kind of play out more here by the end of the text. See, we people of faith need to draw our faith from the word of Christ. Not insisting that, it, that the only way I can really believe is if I see Jesus perform certain types of things in my life. And we do this in the church a lot, right? We do this in the way that we say, well, you're really not a church if you don't have certain size or certain group of people in here, right? Or you're not really a church if you don't have certain programs available for families in certain ways. You're really not a church. You're really not seeing God do big things if you don't see big works of the Spirit. You, you're really not a church if you don't see big change in your life individually. But none of that's the case here. Friends, I just want to settle your soul this morning, <laughs> just like we sang earlier. That what was really needed was a faith this father demonstrated in the word of Christ, and he just returns home to carry on life. It just, it's so simple that it's stupid, Right? Just so simple, it's stupid. You just trust Jesus to be who he says he is. We need a faith that comes by hearing. If we want the right kind of faith, we need a kind of faith that comes by hearing. That's what we see here unfolding in these first parts of this, this text. He, he just needs a faith. He didn't need faith by seeing of course, he does see, and I'm sure he will see things, and lots of people see the great things Jesus does, and those are great and wonderful. They're all wonderful things to see, but we need a faith that comes by hearing, receiving the word of Christ, believing in the word of Christ. 
But we also need a faith, as we're going to see in the rest of this passage, that continues to grow. Because now we see the next day, which is phenomenal. Let me just read it. Verse 51. While he was still going down, his servants met him, saying that, this, that his boy was alive. What joyous news. And he asked them at what time he had gotten better. And they said to him, yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Now, let's just stop there for a second. Yesterday. So this father is 15 miles from home. He's in dire straits. And if I'm a father, I'm probably going, I just want to be by my son's bedside. And so I'm not going to let the afternoon, whether it gets long in the day, I'm not, I want to make it home that night because I want to be by my son's side. But this man's faith, and, I may be, and maybe I'm putting too much into this, but this man's faith and what Christ said he would do is so enriching if you think about it because he goes to some lodge somewhere or someone's home and he sleeps that night. He gets up the next morning and then he makes his way home. Now, listen, to be fair, 15 miles back then would probably be about a three-hour journey maybe, walk, maybe four-hour journey. So it's a good long walk. But, but nonetheless... That wouldn't deter me from being with my kids. And I'm sure it wouldn't deter him if he had not gotten the answer he wanted, if he didn't really believe Jesus was going to do what he said. But he rests in it. He rests in what Jesus does. He left Jesus yesterday with a peaceful heart, and he trusted Jesus was going to be true to his word. How wonderful that is. And he gets there, and these guys are so excited about what they're seeing that they're actually coming out to meet him on the road to, to Cana, and they say, your son is alive. He got better yesterday. Oh, wait a minute, hold on. Yesterday? Well, well, tell me this. Well, the father then realized that it was the very hour, verse 53, in which Jesus had told him, your son will live. So he himself believed, along with his whole household. Isn't that amazing? It's beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. He believed with his whole household. What began as, a, as an impulse and a desire, right and good impulse, to make sure that his son is cared for, turns out to be the least centralized issue by the time this story is over with. Because who's at the center of the problem, at the center of the story now? Jesus. He's going back to his home. His son is healed. And guess what he is doing? He's saying, Y'all, Jesus is who he says he is. And his whole household believed. So what do we do with this? When I just, a couple of thoughts come up in my head. They're very simple thoughts, but I think they're always worth us reminding our, ourselves of these things. That, number one, people of faith continue to grow in the word of Christ. And I'm not just talking about the kind of growing in the word of Christ where you're always learning new things about the Bible, which is wonderful and true, and you should. You should grow in theology. You should. But the kind of understanding that by sitting under the word preached and word taught and even under our daily routines of meditating upon the word and praying the word, that we're actually continuing to reform every day. You can't possibly not change if you're under the word daily. The Spirit works that way. So people of faith continue to grow in the Word of Christ. Two, 
there's just an impulse that begins to shift in our lives to share that word with those around us. We've noted this in the Samaritan woman's conversion of the last two or three weeks, where she just, she had been changed so fundamentally that all she could do, this woman who's rejected, she's on the fringes of her own community, she goes in and boldly declares the gospel, and people come to hear Jesus, and before this whole thing's over with, after two days of Jesus' teaching, we've got a whole lot of revival going on in Sychar. The same thing is true here. This father, royal official, I mean, he has a lot to lose. Probably working in the court of Herod. He has a lot to lose here. And he believes. And he shares this belief. And his whole household believes. Friends, simple word. Changed people. Change people. Changed people, change people. It's just that simple. We were talking about it this morning in Sunday school. I can't remember who was who mentioned it, but there's just something about the daily engagement that we have in our everyday rhythms that we tend to take for granted. And I think a lot of people were talking about this this morning. That when you're changed, it just it just spills out of your life, doesn't it? Changed people change people. So two challenges, and we're going to hit the tables. Okay, maybe come to the table. Excuse me. I said that one time before, and I was really unfortunate. <laughs> Sorry. Two questions. Two questions before we come to the table. Are you a changing person as a result of your discipline to sit under the Word of God daily, and I would even say more specifically, weekly with the people of God as we gather under the word and sacrament under the word and the table. Are you a changing person as a result of those types of disciplines and commitments in your life? Are you? Friends, that's, that's the heart of the table. You come here this morning as believers, if you're a believer, and by the way, believers are, should be the only ones who come to the table because you're the only ones who have hope of what Christ has done. If you are not, then you should not come to the table here in a little bit. Sorry, Delon, I'm probably getting into Delon's stuff here in a little bit. But the reality is, is that the heart of the table, the heart of preaching is knowing that we are a people who have changed and are continuing to change. The second thing is, is are you a people changing, are people changing around you as you are changing in Christ? So, the easy thought is like, is, is my wife changing because of my faith? Is my, are my children changing because of my faith? Now, I don't want to load things on your shoulders here. I know that that feels like a heavy burden because I feel it all the time. But, but the reality is, Trust Jesus, but if you're getting close to Christ, there's going to see things that spill off in our lives, and hopefully we see those kinds of changes. And they come in different degrees, and they come in different time spans. Sometimes it takes years or months for things to happen in our lives, so don't get discouraged. But, but, but maybe as you look over the last five, or I mean one, five, ten years of your life, you can see that there have been people's lives have been changed because you've been changed in Christ. Whether it's your friends, coworkers, neighbors, kids, take courage that... It's not you. It's Christ in you. And Christ is, the, is, is declaring himself through you. Changed people. Changed people. Say it again. Let's just say it together. 
changed people change people.